today's scripture reading is found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, if you want to follow along. And I will be reading out of the message version this morning. So roll up your sleeves, get your head in the game, be totally ready to receive the gifts, the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. You call out to God for help, and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. Your life is a journey you must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It costs God plenty to get you out of the dead-end, empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished, sacrificial lamb. And this was no afterthought, even though it was only lately at the end of the ages become public knowledge, God always knew he was going to do this for you. It's because of this sacrificed Messiah, when God then raised from the dead and glorified, that you trust God, that you know you have a future in God. The word of the Lord. Being different, standing out in a crowd, hasn't always gone well for most of us. This guy looks pretty happy about it. I don't know, maybe he knows something I don't. But I remember the first time I felt different. I was only in first grade. And uh, I went to a small little country school, so there weren't that many kids in my class. And I just noticed that all the girls in the classroom had really dainty and pretty shoes. And I had trouble with my feet. And so I wore these big clunky shoes. And kids made fun of me. I didn't like the experience of being different. I've shared this story before with you, but one of my sons, uh, well, both our sons are biracial, and one of my sons in kindergarten sobbed one night because his skin was a different color than everybody else in his classrooms. Broke my heart as a mother. The treatment that many of us experience for being different, whether it's because of skin color or because we're differently abled than the rest of the room or because we're wearing big clunky shoes, leaves us leery about being different. And yet we also find as we go along in life that uh, being different can be a good thing produces good things in us, it produces good things in other people. Think about when a a person of a different culture moves into our neighborhood or our church or our school, it just brings and opens up a whole new world for us. Love that. 
Being different can grow our courage bank. And being different can grow the courage bank of others as well. Last week, or no, not last week, but a couple of weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, we had uh, nine people be baptized on a Sunday morning. And I had the privilege of interacting with several of them beforehand, and I realized a theme here. Okay, these people are pretty nervous about this. Yeah. You know, you think nine, that's a lot of people, but they're, that morning they were in front of a 400-member crowd, and they just felt what it was to stand out. That, their courage, I was so happy for all of them because every one of them went through it. They knew they were standing out. They knew they were going to be a little different, soaking wet up here. But they went through it. And I can guarantee you that their courage that morning increased the courage of someone else in the crowd to also pursue baptism the next time we do it. Because I see that happen every time. Different can be hard. The psychologists tell us that being different from the crowd also strengthens our ability to handle stress and it develops in us compassion for other people. So yes, different can be hard, but different can produce good in our own lives and a bonus in the lives of the community. Mike opened up our sermon sermon series last week, a look at the book of 1 Peter. It's called Strangers in a Strange Land based on the New Testament book of First Peter. And Peter is writing, just to give you a little context here, he's writing to people who have become believers. They're, they're followers of the way, followers of Jesus, and they're dispersed throughout Asia Minor. Most likely they are a mixture of Gentiles and Jewish Christians. <clears throat> Believers were beginning in that area to really experience some significant social and cultural marginalization due to their belief system. And so Peter opens the letter encouraging his readers with some truths. He first starts, he encourages them, and Mike walked through that. Go back and listen to his sermon if you'd like online. How he looks at um, the priceless inheritance that they have gained. He talks about how they, uh, the protection and power that is theirs through Jesus Christ. And he encourages them with the wonderful joy that is ahead. And he even wants to tell them, hey, you guys, what you're experiencing is such an incredible work that God has done in your time. So incredible that, that the prophets of old and even angels long to see what you're seeing and to experience what you're experiencing. So then Peter, after he gives him all of that encouragement, he, he then transitions to what we here at New Hope often call to the so what. Okay, that all sounds great, but, but so what? How does it impact my life? What are, what, are, what are his readers supposed to do with this newfound knowledge? And basically, Peter says, because of all that God has done for us, we are called to live differently. Earlier, we heard the passage read in uh, the message. Today, this morning, I'm going to pop back forth just so you know a little bit between uh, the message and NIV. I think for any of us, when we're reading a passage and wanting to dig in and know more about it, it's helpful to read a variety of 
of translations. So let's look at verse 13 again, this time from the NIV, just that one verse. Peter writes, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. In other words, pay attention, this is serious stuff. Set your hope, he writes, on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. People can withstand so much if they know the purpose for which they're withstanding it. And if there is a hope in the future for a better day. Think about chemotherapy. Nobody would would suffer through chemotherapy without the hope of, of either an extended life or a complete cure from cancer. So Peter is calling his readers to see the, the, what's out there for them in the future, and he calls them forward. And he, he's gonna call them in a few moments to a different way of life, okay? To live differently than the culture around them. But before he gets there, he says, you are called to a different hope. You have a different hope. Now, what does he mean by that, a different hope? Well, before Jesus before they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Jewish faith, people from the Jewish faith had placed their hopes for having a right relationship with God in following the letter of the law and in a religious system of sacrifices made over and over again for their sin. That's where their hope had lied. And then if the Gentile believer before Jesus, before following Christ, Oftentimes, Gentiles place their hope for a right relationship with a plethora of gods by worshiping idols and by doing frenzied activities, even self-mutilization before those idols in order to have hope for whatever it was they were hoping for. Now, Peter invites these two groups of people made one, we are all made one in Christ, to a different hope one they can look forward to with absolute confidence, the grace that will meet them on Christ's return. Now, many may argue today uh, that the key motivational source for Christians is fear of punishment. But over and over, biblical writers point us to grace, kindness, goodness, and the favor of God as the true motivator for a changed life. And that's what Peter's saying here. I'm gonna call you to a different life. He's gonna call us to a different life in just a moment. But first he said, put your, put your hope in the grace that's gonna meet you, the favor and the kindness and the goodness of God. Okay, it's so a little Greek lesson here this morning. The, the Greek verb here for hope that we translate hope is elpizo. And anytime you see that in the New Testament, it carries with it a connotation of, hey, you can hope in this because this is something that is going to happen. It's not like, oh man, I hope the Cowboys win today. (laughs) 65% chance I looked it up for those of you wondering. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe you say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Well, it is the fall people and it is the Northwest, so come on. (laughs) That's not a great chance either. So very different is the word hope here that, that is translated for us in that way. Uh, it's not, when Peter talks of hope, it's not something that may or may not happen. 
He's absolutely confident it's going to. Now, okay, well, that's great for Peter, but I want a little bit more than that. How do I know that Peter's, you know, just not a really positive person? Because what Peter is pointing us to and saying, this is where your hope lies, is based on something that's already happened in the past. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, th- and the people that he's writing to have placed their hope right there. And he's, so he, he just tells them, you can absolutely hope on the grace of, that will meet you when Jesus comes again. The death and um, resurrection of Jesus, let me talk about that just for a minute. Every, this is important to know that everything that Jesus said when he walked on the earth, everything he said about the Messiah, the Son of Man, himself, he came true. And Peter was eyewitness to so many of those things. And not just the words of Jesus, although that would be enough, but all of the prophets that told Israel, don't give up, don't lose hope, keep on, the, on this path because there's a Messiah coming for you. There's a Redeemer, there's a Savior coming. All that they said came true. Okay, so you've got all of that, that Jesus comes, that happens. And then, but there's more promises, isn't there? Because Jesus is gonna come again. And so now the Pope is looking back and saying, okay, all of this happened and I'm gonna keep believing for all that Jesus said was gonna happen in the future. In preparing his disciples for his own death, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me when everything is ready I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. One thing I love about Jesus is that he was always honest. He always told his followers and his friends exactly how it was. He didn't say, hey, life's gonna be rosy all the time. Uh Uh-uh. He said, you're gonna have trouble in this life and it's gonna get hard. And for his particular disciples at that time, he let them know that... um, they were gonna not be treated well, that persecution was coming, that they would um, experience difficult things because of their faith and their belief in him. But again, he said, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, for I have overcome the world. Put your hope, my friends, Peter said. So Peter continues the same message he heard from Jesus. He now shares with believers. He said, hey, this is hard. But put your hope in the favor, the goodness, the kindness, the grace of, that will meet you on the day of Christ's second return. Eugene Peterson translates this first phrase, because of all of that, he says, so roll up your shirt sleeves, get your head in the game. In other words, prepare for the future with intentional effort, okay? Get serious about what I'm about to say, he says. Set your focal point on the grace that's coming. So once he has totally and completely let them know, you guys, you have a different hope, and it's an incredible hope, then he moves to the next thing. He points them to a different ideal. Let's look at verse 15 and 16 from the message. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil just doing what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy. 
you be holy. I grew up in a holiness movement church. Now, some of you are going, and what on earth is that? Well, if it helps you just kind of uh, make some identification with what kind of a church, a holiness movement church is. It, uh, some of churches in that belief system are the Nazarene Church, uh, the Church of God, which I grew up in, the Free Methodists, and the Wesleyan Church. And those are churches that put a strong emphasis on holy living. And they put a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit being able to help us live out a different life from our culture. One of the things I resonate and appreciate about New Hope is our agreement and our appreciation of diversity of thought on non-essentials. We think there are very few essentials in the faith. Who we believe God to be, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We believe in the divine inspiration of scripture and that salvation is by grace alone. It's a free gift of God and that none of us can work at it or earn it. Those are the essentials. Some of us in the room and not so very long ago grew up in the time when the church was really more about dividing around non-essentials than coming together around essentials. I think that's changed. I think especially here on the West Coast, in the Northwest, we are experiencing a time when churches are regrouping and coming back together around the essentials of faith. It seems um, sometimes when churches, and I think we've all walked through a pretty hard time in the last few years, whether you're in church or whether you're not, everybody's walked through a hard time, right? A lot of people have left church in the last few years. And as we struggle and try to figure all that out, difficult times can kind of help us get our heads back on right about what's important and what really isn't. And so uh, I doubt that Christians in places like Libya and Pakistan and places where they're persecuted are really very worried about whether we do communion every Sunday or occasionally or whether we immerse or sprinkle when we baptize. I say all of that honestly to say that there is grace and space in this room for different understandings of what it means to be holy. We're all trying to figure that one out. I just encourage you don't get stuck there on maybe an old definition that you have. Just stay open as we walk through this. I think the places, I think the thing that we probably, if we're believers, and we're so glad you're here this morning, if you're not, maybe you're exploring faith, but you're not sure where you're landing. So this is kind of a, First Peter's kind of a, a family talk in some ways, talking to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And if we have, I think that one of the things we would agree is that we are called to be holy. What that looks like we can work out, but we are called to be set apart, to be different. And a favorite definition of many for holiness is to be set apart, sacred, uh, for for, uh, set apart for a sacred use. And that came from the Old Testament in the temple of Yahweh where there were uh, instruments 
that were used only in the, in the Holy of Holies. And those were called holy because they were not used for any other purpose than to serve God. There is um, <clears throat> the idea then goes on through scripture to be applied. That same thing that is applied to the instruments are applied to God's people. That we are a set apart people. That we are called to look different than our world. And we, boy, we've gotten really confused, I don't know, through the decades and the hundreds of years of what does that mean? What should that look like? Does it mean that we completely separate out from the world and we just stay in our little cloister? What does that look like? Some have believed that. Some think, no, if you're gonna follow Jesus, you gotta be right in the mix of things and look different right where you are. The ideal is lifted up to us by 1 Peter to be holy is no less than the ideal of God himself. Nine times in scripture, God says, be holy for I am holy. I like, uh, this was actually sent to me, uh, Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay wrote this, given that holy is a word that denotes Yahweh's supernatural nature It may seem surprising to find the word attached to a city or a people, but when Yahweh lays hold of something, it ceases to be ordinary. That's so good. And God is in the business of laying hold of people, of laying hold of Moseses and Davids and and Marlises and all of you. God's in the business of laying hold. He laid a hold of every one of us through Jesus Christ. Peter presses this point throughout the whole book that our new life in Christ implies an altered life. It's characterized by who God is. We have a different ideal being lifted up to us. Our ideal is no longer following the letter of the law. Our ideal is no longer an appeasement of the idols, but of walking in relationship with God, reflecting his image and whose image we are made to the world around us. Some of you will know this, if you're, especially if you're a Bible nerd or you've been around the Bible for a long time. There's a section in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus called the Holiness Code. It's actually uh, been a, a subject of great controversy in the last 20 years. Anyway, In that holiness code, God gives regulations to Israel concerning such things as clean and unclean food, purification after childbirth, regulations about infectious diseases, mildew, bodily discharges, sexuality, and a number of other things. I don't recommend reading it on an empty stomach. (laughs) Right, this sounds kind of gross. Peter, in this book, There is a reference back to Leviticus, but it is not in the way that some people would think it would be or even want it to be. He does not come up with a list of do's and don'ts in connection with being holy. What he does do is he points to the family relationship that we have with God. And that's actually a higher calling than to follow the letter of the law. Peter in this section calls us obedient children. I was with a group 
recently where we were talking about the images that we all carry of God. And I just kind of thought I would be the one who, because of my holiness upbringing where I thought I had to be perfect in order to be okay and to be loved, and I also grew up with an angry father, I kind of thought I'd be the only one who struggled with seeing God as an angry God and to whom I'm mostly a big disappointment. But around that circle, almost no matter what the church background was, no matter what the, well, I don't know about the parental thing, but around the circle, so many of us, I felt so heartsick to learn that so many of us see God that way and see ourselves in that way. A couple of years ago, I had somebody dear to me say, I had to walk away from my Christian faith in order to protect my psychological and emotional health. Ouch. Something's wrong with that picture. And I actually resonated with what he said. So don't think that I take lightly when we talk about such a subject as being called to be holy as God is holy that I think it's an easy topic. I think that um, we have to grapple with this call to be holy with careful thought and great discernment. And that it's never our responsibility, it's not our calling to judge anyone else's life. That's God's. And actually the passage does talk about that God is an impartial judge and will judge our behavior. We don't have to church, okay? That's not our role. So let's all just kind of regroup around that, that that's God's place and not our own because I, I sense that we've affected a lot of people in ways that God didn't mean for us to affect them. Peter calls us yet to be obedient children two terms we struggle with, right? We bristle at the word obedience because we think that means somebody's controlling us. And that's scary. And we no longer want to be called children because we think we're all grown up and mature. <laughs> I'll never forget one time sitting in an important board meeting, this was before our churches has merged, and uh, Gary Walker is at the table, and there are important decisions on the table. And he looks at me, he goes, do you ever just wait for the grown-ups to walk into the room? <laughs> and then remember, uh-oh, we're it. <laughs> it's like, yep. <laughs> so I don't know how mature we always feel that we are, but we're, we bristle about obedience, and we bristle at being called children. Let me start with this. Peter is not using the term children in a patronizing way but a reminder that we belong. A reminder that we belong to God, we are family, and we are God's beloved children. A friend recently told of a moment that she had that they had in their family of a moment of, of correction and character building with one of their sons. He had come home from preschool having taken something that didn't belong to him. And mama knew it, and she began to kind of invite that confession and that story to unfold, but it just wasn't happening. 
Then dad gets home, and I think mom kind of, I think, I think this little boy's, his resolve had been weakened, right? My mom asking him repeatedly. Dad gets home, looks him in the eye, and out comes the story. And this poor little boy, you know, is just burdened down with having taken something that didn't belong to him. And so mom and dad, because they love their son, said, okay, well, here's, here's what we're going to do. You'll need to go back tomorrow. You'll need to tell the teacher what you did and um, give it back. So in they walk, and you imagine this little boy's heart just beating. He walks in and confesses what he had done and because his parents said, this is the path you need to walk, so he did. And the teacher, of course, listened to him and gave him full forgiveness. He said, all is forgiven. And the parents said the joy that erupted from this little boy, just the relief of, oh my goodness, yes, I don't have to hold that anymore, was a character-shaping moment, right? What a great lesson in that family. I think obedience gets a bad rap. It feels like, Somebody's trying to control us. Yet if we like to make our own independent decisions about our behavior separated from what God says, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna feel good in the long run. Okay. We know when a loving parent is shaping and forming a child with love and obedience to a certain standard of behavior, a certain value system that your family has taught that child to basic things like, we don't steal, you don't tell lies, you're kind, you don't hit, those kind of things. We know that when that child is raised in that way, that it leads to health and wholeness for that child and for the child's community, the family, the school, the neighborhood. Ask a teacher, and we have several in this uh, church, ask a teacher what it's like to have a student whose character has not been formed and shaped by loving parents who expect their children to behave by certain standards. It's hard. It's rough. In the first service, I heard laughter throughout the whole place because we have so many teachers who know what that's like. And if either thing is missing in the child's life, whether it's uh, love or obedience, there's chaos and it doesn't work well. Maybe a child is loved and just taken such good care of, but never corrected, never shown a better way of life, that's trouble ahead. Or if just as bad, maybe worse, when a child is just expected to live by a certain standard, but has no love and support around them, that's just as bad as well. God's the perfect father. Scripture calls him that. He's a perfect parent. And he loves us and asks us to walk in obedience. This holy God who loves us, loves the world around us as well. And he wants us to flourish and he wants our communities to flourish too. So as obedient children, Peter said, let yourself be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. That energetic piece stood out to me when I heard about this little boy's story and how he just changed after his experience and he got his energy back. So the good life is the God life. The ideal that is held up for us for holiness is nothing less 
than God, the character of God. It's not, we're not called to a holiness code. We're not called to follow the letter of the law. We're called to a relationship in which we are deeply loved, but in one in which we are not God. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. New Testament scholar Karen Jobes notes, this is a little long, but I think it's helpful. The Apostle Peter recognizes continuity of authority and principle between the Old Testament and Christians, but also differences in the particulars because his readers now live after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, as well as in a different time and place in ancient Israel. Christians are no less God's people than was ancient Israel and no less accountable to God than Israel was. But their holiness is expressed in ways that are appropriate to their own historical moment. Peter's example is instructive for hermeneutics today as Christians seek to submit to the authority of the Old Testament, yet without seeking a priest to examine mildew in the bathroom. (laughs) To live holy means that believers conform our thinking and our behavior to the character of God. So it's really important that we know what the character of God is. So if we examine that in scripture, examine the character and the behavior and the belief or uh, who God is, this is what we see. The first time God tells us who he is, it is in conversation with Moses. It's recorded in Exodus 34. And these verses, these words will be used several times again throughout the Old Testament. God himself is speaking. He says, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. Who wouldn't want to live in a world of people that looks like that, right? People that were full of compassion and mercy and forgiveness, slow to anger and abounding in in unfailing love, but who didn't let jerks be jerks. God revealed himself further through the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, what? The Father and I are one. God took on the form of man as Jesus of Nazareth. He left the glory and all the amazing location of heaven to walk with us. That we might see eye to eye, skin to skin, know him, touch him, He left all of that. So he shows himself as a God willing to suffer humiliation and rejection and violence to free humanity from a broken way of life. That's our ideal. When we take lightly the call to be obedient children, independently deciding what's wrong and what's right, what is ideal, what isn't, we often crash and burn our own lives, but we also crash and burn the communities in which we live, our families, our neighborhoods, our churches. From the headlines just this week, Target shut down nine stores across the United States, three right here in Portland due to excessive theft and organized crime. Fentanyl deaths um, are just getting completely out of control including those of children affected by 
where fentanyl is kept. Homelessness has hit so many cities that it's a crisis in more city than ours. Our communities are not flourishing. So the call back to being different for the church is an important time. What would the world look, how would the world look differently if we took God seriously again? Look at verse 17 from the message. You call out to God for help and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget he's also a responsible father and he won't let you get by with sloppy living. Peter ties that sloppy living into living the ways that we would live if we didn't have Jesus in our lives. He ties it into living out of our own desires and for our own self. I had a conversation with a friend this week who uh, just isn't sure the church looks very different anymore than the world around us. And if it does, it's pretty superficial. I think it would be a really good time for all of us to consider taking God seriously again. Not as a downer, not as a, a harsh thing, but as a thing to give life to us and to our communities. Holiness looks different. And Peter finally says, okay, I've given you this wonderful, different hope for your future. I've given you a different ideal, no longer following the letter of the law, but having a relationship with the God of the universe. And now I'm gonna give you a different why. Verses 17 through 21. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God." Professor uh, Emeritus at Wheaton University, John Walton, defines fear of God as taking God seriously. And I think that sums up everything that Peter's saying in this passage, just take God seriously. The first why for that, Peter says, is because if you call God Father and Christians say that we do, then just know that God is an impartial judge He's not an impartial parent. He's an impartial judge. And he loves us all, but he will judge us accordingly how we've lived our lives. We have been called to reflect God in a way to the world that looks like him. And we're to live out his character taught to us, compassionate, merciful, and holy. And we like those first two words. We like compassion and we like mercy, but do we like holy? If we live out, if we um, leave out holy, the Bible just teaches us that it leads to broken lives and chaos in our communities. And I think we're seeing that. We need to take God seriously about the way that we're called to live. The second reason more importantly, 
to the why that we should take God seriously and live differently is because of what it cost God. To purchase us back from a dark and painful road that our desires have taken us down. Money wasn't used to redeem us. The kingdoms of the earth weren't given to redeem us. The thing that redeemed us was God's own son. Nothing less. A sacrifice of the very best that God had to give. Actually, a, very, a sacrifice of the very best of God who hung on that cross for our sake. And church, and I'm just talking to the church right now, have we told that story so many times that it's just become folklore? Do we know that? Do we know what it costs God to give us a new life, to give us a pathway? Is it a quaint story or a stunning reality. As we wrap up today, I'm just gonna say in my own grappling with this call to be different this week, last couple of weeks as I've studied that, it's, it's been convicting. I've had to examine my life. Is my life different because of Jesus? Is my life different because I listened to the Holy Spirit? I don't know about you, but... Um, I, it would be dishonest of me this morning to make you feel like I've got all this down, because I don't. Thank you for the background music. <laughs> I don't have it all down, and my guess is this morning you may not either. So here's some practical ways that we can pull this call on our lives to live differently into reality. Back in 19, or 19, not back in 1729, two brothers, Charles and Charles, John and Charles Wesley at Oxford University began a club with some of their friends. And pretty soon it wasn't long before that club was jokingly referred to by the rest of the college as, oh, that's the holy club. <laughs> and that club, they would, um, they made an agreement, the 25 members, oh, never grew beyond 25 members, by the way. But those 25 guys would get together and they, they made an agreement that daily they would self-examine themselves with 22 questions. And then they would come to week, together weekly and they'd get gut level honest with each other. Those 22 questions were made up of questions such as these. Am I honest in all my acts and in my words or do I exaggerate? Do I confidently pass on to others things that have been said to me in confidence? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? That's just a sample, 22 questions. Here's what I say. okay, so I told you already, the club never grew beyond 25. But out of those 25 guys, there were many that became powerhouses in the kingdom of God, both in the United Kingdom and here in the United States. People like George Whitfield, who began the Great Awakening. I can't remember them all, I should have written them down. But go, all you need to do, if you would like to just take a look at what those 22 questions are, I encourage you to do so. If you're in life groups this week, you're gonna get them. They're gonna be there for you. But if not, just Google John Wesley Holy Club and these 22 questions will come up. I encourage all of us to find ways that we can pull into our lives 
just practical tools that would help us live a holy life. I hate to tell you, my mom told me recently, my mom's 94, and she's really a practical person. I mean, she's amazing. She said to me, Denise, I've always thought you lived in an ivory tower. <laughs> I thought, oh, I've really actually taken that to heart because I think I don't dive for the practical very often. I'm up here a lot in ideas and, and theory and thoughts. And she's very practical, and I think that we need sometimes a practical tool to help us take God seriously in the way we live. Encourage all of you uh, this week. Thanks for listening this morning. I'm going to invite Sarah Hon Houston up. Sarah, come on up. She helps oversee our global justice here at New Hope. This we are during this series on the First Peter, a persecuted church letter, a letter to the persecuted church. We have persecuted churches right here in our time and our day, and we want to take seriously what they're walking through. Sarah's going to talk to you about Libya and how we can be praying for them. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Libya is listed on the world watch list at number five in the world for persecuting Christians. Life in Libya is difficult. Um, it's compounded for Christians and especially Christian converts from Islam. Islam makes up 97% of the people who live in Libya are Muslim. So you can imagine being a Christian living there and what you experience. Um, it's extremely difficult for Christians to practice their faith openly. Uh, the extremist groups target and kidnap and kill Christians. Sorry. The, um, the evangelical work in the country is ruthlessly opposed. Christians who convert to Islam are rejected by their Muslim families, their friends, the people who are supposed to love them, the people who have raised them. They are beaten, they lose their jobs, they're abused, and they face intense pressure to, um, to not follow Christ. Um, and they're killed um, if they decide to do so. Um, believers from the Muslim background um, are most at risk in Libya of violence from the Islamic extremist groups. Christians there who publicly express their faith and try to share the gospel with others are likely to face the arrest. And um, many of them just have uh, face extreme risk just to even own a Bible there. Libya needs our prayers, so please pray with me. Lord, we lift up the Christians, the persecuted church in Libya. We know that despite uh, the spiritual warfare there and despite the odds, we know that the church is growing and that your hand is there and spiritual protection is provided in the name of Jesus. God, we lift up the church. We lift up the people there. We lift up the Christians who risk and lose everything in your name. Lord, we pray for your hand on them. We pray for your peace. We pray that in the face of persecution, that they know the name of Jesus and they recognize his strength and they know him and they will continue to glorify him despite the odds and despite what they risk. Lord, we know it's a challenging place and we know that you 
are above all things. God, we pray for your church to grow. We pray uh, for your hand on them. We pray for that spirit of peace. We pray for the Holy Spirit to continue to guide them in a place where they can't see and they don't know and they experience fear, God. We pray that you continue to give them that rest and that comfort in their heart knowing that they're following the one true God. We pray that as they continue in their faith, even without a Bible, that the scripture can be spoken into their heart. We pray for the protection of the people who are witnessing in a place that is dark. And God, we just continue to pray that one day Libya will bow on their knees to you despite the circumstances. And in your name we pray, amen.